HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Watayama, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Jamie Graves, who is the Japanese portfolio manager at Skarnik Wines, which is a leading wine and spirits importer and a distributor based in New York City. And Jamie speaks perfect Japanese, mm. and uh, um, we'll ask him how he got there. And also we'll uh, borrow his extensive knowledge of sake and uh, discuss some specific sake-related topics, including uh, kimoto sake making method and how long you can keep sake uh, after opening the bottle and much, much more. But quickly before we start, uh, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Video Network website as well as uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org. And actually, today's questions about sake um, that I'm going to ask Jamie actually came from our listeners. So please feel free to contact us at any time. Again, it's uh, Japanese at the Heritage Radio, Radio Network.org. And uh, finally, um, Sumo Stew is coming back. Uh, now it's uh, num- number 20, Sumo Stew. It's going to be on Saturday, uh, March 24th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Brooklyn Kitchen in Williamsburg. And uh, so, uh, as you may know, uh, it's a live streaming of Sumo Tournament 
from Japan. And you can have chankonabe, which is a traditional sumo wrestler's healthy food, and bento box. And uh, there's going to be wakugo performance, which is a traditional Japanese comedy. So uh, for Japanese listeners, there's a discount code, uh, $10 off. That's uh, Japan Eats 10. It's Japan Eats 10. So the, the details, please go to sumostew.com. Um, That's S-U-M-O-S-T-E-W.com. And uh, there's also an account at Instagram. It's at sumostewbk um, on Instagram. So thank you so much. So now let's start a conversation with Jamie Graves. Hi, Jamie. Hi, how are you? Welcome. So, uh, so first of all, as I said earlier, uh, you're from New York, but you speak perfect Japanese. Um, it's, <laughs> I attempt to speak a Japanese. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, so I heard that you were on the JET program, uh, which is Japanese government-sponsored English teaching program, and you were there in 2002 and 2003. So why did you sign up for the program? Um, Sort of the line that I've used over the years, which um, I realize sort of simplifies it, but um, I like to say that I, I just finished uh, college, I just finished uh, an undergraduate degree, and uh, I would say I, I had nothing better to do, and it, it seemed like a good opportunity, um, and I wanted to live abroad. Um, the reality of it, I had a little bit of experience with Japan um, before I went. Um, I had uh, taken a few courses in college um, around uh, sort of Japanese history, more kind of modern Japanese history. Um, but that wasn't my specific uh, focus. I definitely had a lot of interests in sort of modern Japanese history. And um, I was actually into a lot of uh, actually sort of underground uh, Japanese punk bands and stuff. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of what I listened to in like high school and college. And there was sort of a little bit of interest there. And, you know, I had no other plans for a career or a, a job. I had no idea what I wanted. And it seemed like a really cool opportunity to be able to, you know, live abroad. And I sort of knew that you know, at the age of 22, I didn't have many particular obligations to, you know, work or, or family or anything. So it seemed like a good opportunity to be able to um, have an opportunity to live abroad. Mm, okay. And Jet is known for, you know, before you go, you are like treated like king or queen. Yeah. And then once you arrive in Japan, like, oh, goodbye. Have a good day. Yeah. <laughs> so the, where did you teach English? Um, I was in a, a small um, town or city, uh that they call it in Japanese, um, north of um, a place called Hamamatsu in Shizuoka. Mm. So very central Japan, um, about halfway distant between um, Tokyo and Kyoto. So the, the bullet train, when people go to Japan, it passes right through Hamamatsu. Um, I was just north of there in a, um, a small area called uh, Tendyu, mm. um, or it's called Tendyushi or Tendyu uh, City. Um, it's since been, uh, I've heard, absorbed into Hamamatsu. The Japanese government loves to like sort of shift, I don't know, borders around. I don't totally understand it, but mm. it was a very small town. Um, with a, a series of sort of small villages that extended up these two rivers. And I, I taught English at each of the sort of elementary and middle schools uh, that progressed up those two rivers. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think there are many other English-speaking people there. Um, there surprisingly were, actually. Not a ton, but uh, there was a, a, a young woman who was the other English teacher who was not through JET but through a different thing, but she did the kind of a similar job to me. And she was half Japanese and had actually been raised in the area. Mm. Um, there was an, an American family... Um, that had settled there. Uh, it was kind of it was it was a, a, a white American guy and his African American wife, and they found they they lived all over the world, and they found this town was the most like accommodating for them as a mixed race couple anywhere they'd been. So they settled there. Nice. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think uh, Shizuoka is also very nice uh, climate, and mm. they're famous for making tea, and it's a great area. So you were lucky. Yeah, the tea was amazing. There was tons of tea fields around there. I yep. remember in that town. 
Okay, not sake yet. <laughs> not really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, and after you completed the JIT program,、uh, you stayed in Japan for a while. So, what did you do? And I heard、uh, you. Learn to make even handcrafted soba noodles. Yes, I, I so um, I didn't uh, like I said, I was really enjoying the um experience of living in Japan. I, I really enjoyed um the culture and, and the people and particularly the food culture. Um, but I, I sort of found the the um English teaching itself to be um not particularly challenging. They it was sort of um, you know, you show up and you do your work, and and the um the kids were excellent, and a lot of the, the other teachers were great. Um, but it, it didn't seem you know, I was very Um, I was kind of young and really looking for a big challenge for myself. And I,、um, I, I had actually been buying food through a company、um, called、uh, Alishan Foods or、uh, Tengu Foods、um, that had specifically been set up to sell、um, kind of the sort of the products you find in American health food stores. Um, to、uh, you know, non Japanese or Japanese、um, in Japan.、Um, so I bought specifically stuff to make、uh, bread through them. I was really obsessed with whole wheat bread, and that's the one thing, one of the few th- great foods that you can't get、mm. sort of outside of really you know, urban Tokyo and stuff. So I was making that, and I saw through their newsletter they were looking for to hire somebody、um, at a small restaurant、uh, that they managed. And I thought, like, wow, that seems. Really cool. I, I would really want to be sort of learning how to cook and doing those sorts of things here and sort of learning about the food culture.、Um, so I kind of、uh, bothered them several times and I, I took this like long trip s all the way from Shizuoka to Saitama where they were based.、Um, mm. And、um, they later told me that I was so sort of persistent about it that they, they felt bad about not giving me a job, even though I had such little experience <laughs> that I'd made these big long trips. And they're like, well, he, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, Saitama is to me, it's like New Jersey. It's close to Tokyo and the main area, like、yeah. close to New York and New Jersey. But then, in, you know, deeper in Saitama Prefecture, it's like really farming area and then beautiful. Yeah, and I, I say that all the time. People are like, where did you live in Japan? I'm like, I lived in like the New Jersey of Tokyo. <laughs> But it's the, yeah, the parallels are really.、Um, Pretty, pretty interesting because it is close to Tokyo. And I lived in both.、Uh, first, that first part was very much like very rural New Jersey with all its farms and sort of up in the more up in the mountains, very idyllic.、Um, and then I also later on lived in the more kind of like urban part of Saitama that's closer to Tokyo as well.、Mm, right. So, did you enjoy working at the restaurant?、Um, I did. It was,、um, it was sort of a crash course. I mean, I definitely.、Um, Uh, I initially, I, I think, had no business being there and、um, sort of you know, learning how to work, even in sort of a small, simple kitchen,、um, you know, was a huge learning curve、um, and working with chefs who were <laughs>、uh, very patient with me. But I definitely got kind of、um, sort of the basics of working in a restaurant, learning how to hustle,、um, learning how to plan out you know,、um, prep and those sorts of things, and、mm. um, really just getting into the,、um, yeah, the whole culture of it and sort of learning a lot about. Food and sort of famous restaurants. That's the first、mm. time I've sort of been exposed to that. Well, actually, I looked up the website. So, that's the, the owner, Jack and Faye. Yes. A couple Americans.、Um, Faye is actually Taiwanese,、oh, okay. um, but Jack、um, is、uh, from Connecticut, I think, originally.、Mm. Yeah. Right. So, they grow everything and then cook at the restaurant and serve、um, the there, there are some farms around there. They may be growing more things now, I think. But、um, mm. basically, the idea for the restaurant is they have all of these amazing. Um, organic products and lots of you know,、um, great spices, organic spices from India, and、um, uh, sort of great,、um, I'm trying to think, organic everything really. I mean, organic rices from Japan. And really, the,、um, the restaurant was meant to be a showcase for those ingredients to、mm. sort of show many Japanese people. I mean, I think even now, probably don't really know what quinoa is, but、right. things like, you know, oh, let's make a great 
quinoa salad or something mm. um, instead of show how to use these kind of unusual products um, in sort of a, a natural way. Mm. That's very interesting. You yeah. really uh, show me some little interesting spot, international spot in Saitama, deep in Saitama. So. Yeah, it's crazy. The <laughs> building itself, they, they just built sort of a new um, kind of headquarters for the company that was like the, the warehouse was right next to it and the offices were in there and the, and the restaurant um, was on the first floor. It was right by a river, really beautiful. But they built it to look like this big red American barn that mm. like as you're driving through sort of very rural Saitama, you suddenly see this huge sort of very like rural American looking building. It's really funny. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a really nice soft landing outside the jet program. And then then I heard that uh, you did uh, um, soba making Yes. Um, So I had um, sort of through them because they were an importer and distributor, they had a lot of um, connections to, you know, tons of restaurants um, all over the place. And that was, you know, opened tons of doors for me. I mean, before that, I didn't really have much of a network. Um, And then so explored kind of, you know, um, working at some of those restaurants. But the the one I worked at for the longest was um, much farther up north uh, in Yamagata. in an area called Nagai, actually a small valley called Isazawa in Nagai. And the people in Isazawa are very uh, firmly will say that we're not from Nagai, we're from Isazawa, even though they're inside mm. that. Um, it's one of the most rural places I've been in Japan. Um, really lovely. And uh, I just had an opportunity to work at a handmade um, soba noodle restaurant there mm. where the um, the gentleman who ran it, um, he... Uh, grew all of his own ingredients for it, almost all the ingredients. So the buckwheat was 100% things that he'd farmed himself. Mm. Um, All of the sort of the vegetables um, that went uh, into sort of like sides and preparations and things were his. Um, Basically, the only stuff that wasn't super local um, was uh, some of the uh, kind of dried fish that he used to make um, the stock Mm. and the dashi. But other than that, almost everything was hyper, hyper local there. Wow. And uh, Yamagata is up north in Tohoku. Mm -hmm. And then it's known for great ingredients. Yes. Um, yeah, the I mean, I remember the soil there was so rich. It was this like blood red color. And um, yeah, the vegetables I had up there, it was the first time I had great, I, I'd never really understand um, things like nimono, you know, which are like simmered Japanese mm-hmm. dishes before I went there because I was like, it just kind of tastes sort of like dashi. I'd, I'd had not great versions of it. And there it was like these vegetables that were so mm. um they had so much energy from the soil and they just prepared very simply it was like oh i've never had daikon that, that mm. tasted like this um, they also grew fruit around there like great watermelons and um apples and things like that which were incredible right. the yeah. color red soil sounds like a lot of minerals like tons of minerals yeah it so. was very i remember seeing it for the first time and thinking like wow i've never seen earth look like that and then digging things out of it you were like mm. wow this stuff's amazing wow yeah Okay, and then, um, so you also worked at uh, uh, the Aflo Photography? What, oh, yes. What did you say? <laughs> so this was, I mean, I really, um, people ask what I did in Japan, and I was like, I, I just say I was bumming around in my 20s. I didn't really have much of a plan. Um, so I, after I'd finished the soba making, I moved back to um, Saitama, but more kind of urban um, Saitama. I had some friends that were in a house, and I was just, they let me stay rent-free if I helped them out a little bit. Um and just completely by chance, I, I'd met some um, uh, Americans uh, or an American and Australian couple who lived in that uh, area. And um, the Australian guy was like, oh, you want to come to a pickup soccer game? And it was just kind of a pickup like intramural soccer game. And I, I didn't I don't play soccer very well. I'm not very good at it. But, um, you know, I sort of kicked around with them. And afterwards, I met this British guy who was like, oh, I work for this photo agency and I'm looking for an assistant. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it was very funny because if just the fact that I could like, you know, use computers, sort of basic knowledge of computers, I spoke 
you know, decent Japanese at that point, especially coming from rural Yamagata. My actually Japanese had gotten <laughs> much better because there was no other um, English around me. Um, I just sort of landed this, you know, photo agent's job. I was interested in photography, too. So it just mm. kind of ended up there kind of randomly. That was in Tokyo? That was in Tokyo. That was mm. in um, Ginza, sort of Higashi Ginza. So I wow. did kind of a traditional, <clears throat> actually salaryman commuting <laughs> route from Saitama to Ginza on the super packed trains for, wow. you know. So you lived there like five years and then you kind of went through every single kind of interesting jobs possible. I, it's, I don't know. I, I've, met, I've met a lot of people during and since who've had like such a range of experiences there that I mean <laughs> you know I probably could have kept on doing that forever just like bouncing around to different random mm. jobs in Japan right but they decided to come back in uh, 19 I uh, know 2007 right yes so uh, what happened um, I mean that was I'd been in Japan for about five years and honestly I'd planned to go for maybe one to two years experience a little bit and then you know come back to the US and at that point I'd been there five years and I was like man if I um I I'm either going to stay here for, you know, really long time, maybe the rest of my life, um, or I'm going to head back to the U.S. And I don't know, I, I sort of felt, um, especially with the photo agency was great, but I didn't really, um, it, it wasn't something I felt super, super passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really see, um, I don't know, much, uh, I didn't really see myself working there like much, much longer. And I didn't really have something else going on. And a lot of my friends too, um, I'd made sort of a good group of friends in Tokyo at that time. And some of them had decided to leave. And I was like, well, maybe now's the time I'm 27. It's probably, you know, up mm-hmm. to that point, it had no sort of direction of a career. I was like, maybe I should go back to the US and like, start thinking about a career right now. Mm, right. And then since uh, when you came back, uh, you had a multiple interesting jobs all related to Japan, including uh, gym at the prominent, prominent Japanese restaurants, and a line cook at the ramen shop. So could you talk about those? Oh, yeah. So um, <laughs> my I didn't actually plan to get back into restaurants when I came back to New York. Um, I was attempting to sort of figure out if I could make uh, a living as a translator. Um, I mean, the one thing uh, I'd done in Japan that I sort of figured, well, if I'm going to be bumming around for a few years, I should probably have at least one thing to show for it. And I was like, well, let me try to get, um, you know, spoken Japanese and sort of like reading and written Japanese down as, as well as I can. It was also a very interesting um, thing to do. I sort of enjoyed it. Um, so I was kind of trying to make a living as a translator back in New York. And I would search um, Craigslist every day uh, for Japanese. And, you know, out of every like 20 things that popped up, one would be like a translation job and 19 would be looking for servers at like Japanese restaurants. And after a while, I was like, look, I'm not making much money. I should maybe take one of these server jobs to make some money. And um, I ended up at uh, Kajitsu uh, when mm. it first opened, which was a great um, sort of uh, shoujin dori, kind of vegetarian-based mm. um, restaurant. I was part of the opening staff there. And that was just a really lucky uh, break. Right. Um, it's a Michelin-starred. Yeah, yeah. We, we got a Michelin star um, the first year or so, which, I mean, really great um, chef, this guy Nishihara-san, who's still a really, really good friend of mine. Um, and through that just kind of met a ton of people in the Japanese, um, food world, <clears throat> excuse me, mm. um, a lot of people in the Japanese food world here in New York and sort of saw that there was this community and sort of a lot of people, um, involved in this broader thing. It was broader than just one job. Um, so yeah, that really, um, it seemed kind of logical from there. I was like, oh, well maybe I can make you know, I always enjoyed restaurants and this seems pretty great. And there's obviously a, a community here. Why don't I, you know, kind of double down on this as mm. opposed to, you know, freelance translating was really, really difficult. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, 
Well, the, you worked at, uh, you know, this, the general manager at Sakamai, and I think that's where we first met, and uh, the brushstroke mm-hmm. as well. No, brushstroke we met first. Yes. Um, but then in between, you worked at the Yuji Ramen. Yes. I thought, like, what happened? Like, making ramen? Um, well, that was, I, I'd, um, so after I left Kajitsu, I went to work um, at Brushstroke, which was this, um, you know, it was David Boulay opening a Japanese restaurant. And it was this sort of been talked about for years. They, for various reasons, the, the opening had been delayed. And I knew the, um, the chef there, uh, Yamada-san, who was the opening chef. He's still the chef there. Um, I knew him because he was a regular at Kajitsu. He was actually very good friends with the chef at Kajitsu. Mm. Um, so he, through knowing him, I, I became uh, part of the opening staff there and uh, worked there for about um, two and a half, three years, I think. And it was an amazing experience. I mean, I learned more in those three years about working in restaurants than anything. It was like such a crass course in food and wine and sort of um, fine dining outside of um, outside of kind of a Japanese context, which is all I'd known to that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, very much having a, you know, this very famous American chef in the French tradition <clears throat> as you're sort of driving creative force really uh, exposed me to more of that end of things. Um, so from there, I, I was really, it was very, very intense and I was pretty burned out around the time that I left and I didn't have a specific job in mind. But um, <clears throat> sort of I knew Yuji. Um, I'd known him from Kajitsu, mm. sort of knew him through the scene. Right. Well, by the way, Yuji came to mm. the show uh, three times. I mean, twice on the really? staff people. And then I, I'm having him soon because he's doing something very interesting. Okay. Yeah, stay tuned. Yuji, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was really funny. I, I'd known him and I was like, oh, he's the guy doing the thing at Smorgasburg and oh, that looks cool. And I went to a... Um, I did. I contributed to the Kickstarter fairly early, and they're like, "Oh, we'll give you like a ramen tasting menu," and it was like, "Oh, it's at this counter in Whole Foods." And mm. I remember showing up. I'm like, "Oh, this is cute!" Like they're doing a tasting menu in, in Whole Foods, and I was blown away. Mm. I mean, it was just world class, and they were doing it like, you know, in this very basic kitchen with like, you know, in in the least kind of like fine dining environment I could think of. It was <laughs> literally in the middle of a supermarket, and the food was just so creative and so good, and. Um, a few months later, I sort of reached out. I saw they were looking for a line cook and I was like, look, I used to cook. Um, you know, I'd love to help you guys out if there's kind of any maybe experience I can bring to you from my perspective as a chef at Brushstroke. I'd love to work on that. And, you know, I, I just sort of figured it'd be interesting and maybe I would find something else. Um, and again, I, I was very impressed by his menu, but I was like, ah, this will be relaxing. And it was the opposite. It was great because, I mean, Yuji blew me away at how driven that guy is and how smart mm. he is. And um, a lot of people will look at that thing on my resume and be like, what? Like, you went from a GM of a restaurant to a line cook to a GM of another restaurant. And I didn't see the line cook as any kind of a break. It was like such a, mm. a learning experience about... Um, it took me out of the fine dining context and sort of the fundamentals of, of cooking and service and all these things. Um, and it really, it taught me a lot about sort of like fish and kind of the basics of cooking again mm. too, which was what I'd hoped to get out of it. Um, but it was a pretty amazing experience. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Yuji, Yuji Haraguchi, he owns uh, uh, the Okonomi. That's uh, during the day, breakfast and lunch, yeah. serving Japanese style breakfast. At night, it becomes Yuji Ramen. Yeah. And then he has now Aosakana. That's a fish retail store. Yeah. That guy, he's got so many ideas and he packs them all in the small space. Mm. Like I initially went, I was like, you're crazy. You can't do all that. And then he does it. (laughs) And you're like, whoa, this, there's nothing, there's no stopping this guy. (laughs) Mm, Right. And he's very uh, logical too. Yeah. He's super Mm. smart. And he never, I mean, one thing I actually really liked about working with him is he never 
would accept any kind of like accepted way of doing things. He'd mm. always be like, why, why, why? And would like question it. And if it made sense to him, he's like, okay, we'll do it that way. And if it didn't, he's like, yeah, we're not doing it that way. Mm. Um, which was very refreshing to be able to work with someone like that who just wouldn't say like, well, this is the way you do things. Mm. He'd always be like, you know, would always question and always try to find a better way. Right. And if he couldn't, he'd go with the accepted way. If he could, he, you know, comes up with something amazing. Mm. Right. So there's one person who's always doing something interesting and uh, yeah, yeah they use Haraguchi, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, let's go back to your responsibility at Skernik. Yes. So what's your responsibility? What are my responsibilities? Um, so I am sort of the first uh, Japanese beverage uh, portfolio manager there. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. How did you get there? How did I get there? <laughs> Good question. Um, so I, um, uh, I, my, I, Worked at a few different restaurants. Um, I was at a, a great restaurant called uh, Oya, um, which is on 28th Street uh, mm. here in Manhattan, or in Manhattan. Um, and uh, Tim, Tim, the chef, came to the show too. <laughs> oh, really? Tim Cushman yeah. was here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tim and Nancy, I mean, really, really lovely uh, people. They started the original Oya Boston in New York. Um, and I wasn't actively looking for anything. Like, mm. I worked there for about a year, um, and I kind of pride myself on, you know, if I take a job, I, I stick for a fairly, you know, a good amount of time. And it's a, they're a great company to work for, really lovely people, really creative food. Um, I loved all the folks I worked with. And I just sort of, I'd been thinking for years that, you know, I, I'd kind of be interested to more directly work with um, sake specifically. I'd, I'd been, throughout my whole time in New York restaurants, um, I'd kind of been slowly studying sake or going to trade tastings and just sort of learning more and more about it um, and figured that was another good you know, good thing to know when you're managing a restaurant, kind of mm. have that specialty knowledge. Um, and I, you know, on my own gone to um, uh, many sake breweries. Like if I had to, was able to take a little bit of time off, I'd go to Japan and it was kind of half vacation, half visiting sake breweries, which to me is kind of like a vacation. It's super fun. Um, so I'd kind of thought about like, well, it's, it'd be nice to work more directly on that end of the business and just sort of caught wind that, um, you know, this company Skernik, which I'd known for many years, uh, was picking up a, a Japan portfolio with sake. And I thought, you know, that's awesome. I, I know that company. I've been to their offices. And I think, um, you know, their reputation is great. I know a few people that work there. And they're all, you know, super smart and super interesting. Um, so I, I sort of just, uh, you know, talked to everyone I could. I was like, you know, who I can talk to there and was able to get um, yeah, an introduction to them. Um, and then I think they were specifically looking for someone who kind of fit both mm. the company culture and kind of knew um, sake and, uh, Japan as well. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, it just ended up being a really great fit that I feel really lucky about that. It, right. Um, and I, yeah, I, I told Nancy, uh, Tim and Nancy Cushman at the time, I was like, I was never going to look for another restaurant job, but this is really like a kind of a dream job fell in my lap. Um, mm -hmm. and they were very understand <clears throat> understanding about that. And Nancy Cushman really likes sake a lot too. So she was very supportive of that as mm -hmm. well. Right. Well, it's interesting because I, I like Skarnik wine, so whenever it's, oh, it's from Skarnik, let's buy it. That kind of thing. <laughs> it was I really trust their, mm. you know, quality. So it's good that they picked up, uh, suddenly decided to have a Japanese uh, sake department. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah, that's something that, um, I mean, that's sort of the reputation of the company. That's how I knew them, is um, initially for really, really fine wines. When I was at Brushstroke, I remember, um, you know, very much our, uh, our uh, sales rep from Skarnik being around a lot. And he was very closely involved with us too, probably more so than any other, um, sales rep we worked with. He was like, worked very, very closely with us, um, was there a lot, gave us a lot of attention, brought great wines around. And then I remember at Sakamai, I went to the office, um, uh, 
uh, we had a cocktail program at Sakamai and I was looking for a few things um, and went to the the bar at the Skernik office um, and did sort of a spirits tasting there. And I was blown away that there's many spirits that I knew and loved um, that I didn't realize they were carrying. And then there was a lot of new ones that I'd never seen before that they introduced to me. So mm. definitely what you said about that perce- or that um, idea of Skernik always having kind of always really carrying quality products at a range of price points. I mean, that's kind of how I knew them. So when they were taking on sake, I'm like, oh, this seems like a really good fit. Like, mm-hmm. I know these guys are not going to treat it lightly. They're really going right. to treat it seriously. So that's Kernik uh, is now um, placing more emphasis on sake. That means sake is becoming more important in this country. I um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's apparently, um, I mean, this definitely predates my time at the company, but they've been talking about it for many years. And they always said, like, look, you know, we don't think the timing is right right now. Like, if we do this, we really want to do it correctly. Um and yeah, they've been talking about it for apparently like five years or so in mm. the making. Um, and it's sort of seen that like, wow, Japanese um, food and restaurants are expanding. Um, we see more and more of a growing of this. Maybe now is the good time to get into sake. And um, yeah, I, I think they, they picked a really good time to get into it. And, mm. Right. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm very excited. It's been um, just under a year uh, and it's, it's been a really awesome yeah. uh, experience so far. Well, I uh, looked up uh, the website and then you have like 32... Sakagura to yes. work with. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. So. It is. I don't know. It's um I'm so used to these uh, you know, I've worked at a lot of restaurants that had very extensive sake lists and sort of put emphasis on that. So it actually feels very manageable to me. I mean, <laughs> don't ask my sales staff. I'm, I'm sure many of them are still like, what? What are all these things? I mean, it's a lot of new stuff for them. Um, mm. For me, that feels just uh, just about right in terms of uh, managing them. Um, I think we've expanded a little bit uh, and I don't want to expand too much more now. I want us to kind of get our heads around it. Mm. Um, specifically, I mean, for myself, I feel very comfortable with it, but it's really being able to train everybody else on that and have everybody feel really comfortable with like talking about, um, you know, the grades of sake and like the producers and, you know, even as simple as just being able to pronounce Japanese words confidently and not mangling those, mm. um, you know, just, I realize that's going to take time. Um, so just kind of not going too crazy with expanding stuff. I think with that 32, that's probably about, about right for where we're at right now. And then, you know, maybe find one or two cool new things to add, but really keep it to that and then hopefully slowly grow in the future. Mm. Yeah. So, so the, let's go back to your, my original question. So your responsibility yes. is to manage and the, the portfolio yeah. and what's to maintain, what's to omit, add yeah. or something like that. Um, I mean, it's another thing I kind of enjoy about the company is it really the, you know, I, I arrived and um, they sort of showed me like, okay, well, here's the, um, you know, here's the, the systems that we use. Here's this sort of like inventory system that we use. Here's how, you know, you ask, like introducing me to different people in the company. And like you ask this person for this, this person for that. And like after a little while, um, like even just a few days or so, it was like, all right, well, make it happen. And I'd say that's like, what are my responsibilities? It's just really make it happen for sake, you know, (laughs) whatever the best way that is like, um, that involves, um, like I've said, sort of educating our sales staff, um, Mm. sort of trying to keep them abreast of things. Um, it's making sure the sake gets here. So it's, you know, working with our importers, um, and talking to them and hopefully getting the, um, you know, the sake here in a timely manner. Um, as you, you know, as I'm sure, you know, sake, unlike wine, it doesn't really, um, generally doesn't improve with aging. Mm. Some do, but and even if it, you know, even if it improves or changes with aging, the producer really wants it to be. Mm. The people who are making it want it to be drunk in a condition, you know, close to where they've made it and released it. Right. Um, so it's it's very tight. Um, as I've been learning, it's very kind of tight uh, windows and timing in terms of you order something and it takes you know 
all this time to get from Japan to uh, our importers and then from our importers to us. And then when we have it, we want to sell it, you know, as quickly as possible. So it's mm. in great condition. Um, and that's a particular challenge I've found as opposed to um, wine. Obviously, you always want to move through inventory quickly, mm. um, but you want to make sure, you know, the, the distance, the time is the longest for sake. I think it's for um, out of anything we carry in the company, I believe it, it takes the longest in mm. terms of the, the point of origin for who's making mm. it to get to us as anything. And we have to sell it in the quickest amount of time. Right. Um, so there's that. And then, um, yeah, and then there's a lot of me just kind of running around uh, directly myself, you know, selling people on it, talking to people about it. Mm. Um, I love going out to um, outside of uh, sort of the New York area and going out to, you know, uh, New Jersey and Connecticut and sort of meeting with folks out there um, who have, you know, less of a context for it and being able to um, sort of show these great products to them and explain to them in a, you know, in a really hopefully clearer way than they've been sold sake before. Because mm. um, a lot of times they'll get it and they don't quite know what it is and being able to say like, this is who makes it. This is where it comes from. You know, this, this is the philosophy of the people who makes it. This is what it looks like uh, where they make it. This is what they're going for. And you can mm-hmm. kind of see people start to, you know, the lights start to come in in their eyes. They're like, oh, okay. Like before I just didn't quite know how to contextualize this. And now, you know, now you're giving me much more of a, a sense of, you know, yeah. where it comes from, the special, like specialness behind it. Yeah, really. you're so good at it. I really like listening to you explaining sake, like sake label, sake gura, because it's like a story. So it's I, it's, I, yeah, I mean, I get super excited about it. I think the people who make sake are, um, it's, it's an amazing industry. Um, mm. They are very, very supportive of each other as an industry. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of like a very big, I think of it as like a very big extended family in Japan. Like, all these produce, like so many of these producers know each other, mm. like intimately, like these families, you know, even if they're on other sides of the country, they're like, oh, I know that guy. How's his son doing? And just like a family, they kind of gossip around each other and they'll sort of be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy. But they fundamentally do seem to, you know, on the whole kind of support mm. um, the category as a whole. It's less kind of like trying to, um, you know, different breweries sort of everyone fighting for themselves and more trying to promote the, <clears throat> the category as a whole, really, which mm. I find really, um, really awesome. And it's it, it, one thing that makes it a really great um, area to work in is mm. that you feel this uh, kind of very collective sense of, um, uh, I don't know, collective sense of responsibility for sort right. of pushing it all forward. Well, actually, it's a survival mood, too, because yeah. uh, it's, uh, used to, they say that the uh, 1600s, like a breweries, but the actual ones, sixteen of oh, the thousands or something. Yeah, I, I've actually heard in some cases even less than that. Wow. Like it's, I mean, you listen to, uh, you know, every time I'm reading John Gauntner about it, and, he, and he'll go into his, you know, that John Gauntner is kind of the sake expert. Um, I think he's been on this yep. program too, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I learned a ton just by reading his stuff online, um, and I was lucky enough to take his course a few um, a few years ago, and he he has this way of kind of instilling in you the complexity of anything regarding sake because he never gives you like a straight yes or no answer he's like well here's the <laughs> short answer and here's the much you know more contextualized answer and and i'm getting into that just because like even pinning down the number of breweries is very hard to mm. do i guess there's like licenses issued and sometimes a brewery might have a license but they might not be active so right. it's yeah it's kind of crazy how few of them there are and they're getting less but they do have this like you said that sort of collective sense of mm. we have to promote this category and sort of make it um better because it's you know it's it's a, it's amazing craft stuff like what they're making is really you know it's it's beautiful it's, it's probably some of the most advanced brewing mm. and fermentation on the planet right. um and it's it's a shame to see that you know um it's a shame to see it when those places don't um 
continue or succeed. Mm. Um, and it's, it's but I, I think overall that the category is actually doing super super healthy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think uh, more value added oriented industry yeah. now. But uh, I think the biggest thing is uh, you know people not drinking as, as much sake as before, mm-hmm. but also succession issues, right? So I, I hear some people uh, go work as a salaryman at mm. big corporations and go back to, you know, succeed the yeah. family brewery of centuries, but it's not always the case. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's actually been really fascinating for me. On um, I was just there in January, and I've seen this kind of every time I've gone back more and more that, and I've, I've heard this anecdotally from friends of mine who are in the industry and, and visit sake breweries, but I really saw it a lot on this most recent trip that um, the, the brewery workers, usually you would go and you're like, oh, it's like these, you know, kind of an older staff that's been working uh, there for quite a time, you know, very kind of blue collar um, staff that's been doing it for a while. And you don't see that many, you didn't used to see that many younger folks with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Recently, I've been going to breweries and you see these like young folks, um, both locals that are kind of like looking for a great food job or looking for a a good and interesting job, but then also people who got into it for the love of it and have moved from actually maybe very far away Mm. to work in, you know, these kind of craft breweries that have great reputations. Mm. And it's amazing to see, you know, it's something just anecdotally I didn't really see a few years ago. And now you see all these like young folks in their 20s mm. who are so excited to make great craft sake and kind of talk about it. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like the the energy behind like the whole craft beer movement. Mm. Um, but what's fascinating about, you know, the craft beer movement was very, you know, it was very American. It was very self-starting and very like, oh, let's read books and figure this out and do it ourselves. Whereas there's a chance in Japan to work, you know, with these very storied breweries that have been doing it for a long time. And they're super grateful to have young people with energy and enthusiasm um, to kind of uh, get in there and, you know, infuse that energy in there, but then also, you know, hope for the future. And I'm Mm. seeing that more and more younger brewery owners who are maybe with their family, they decide not to give it up, but really Mm. put a lot of, you know, energy and um, and thought into it and make really cool stuff. And then also just even on the worker level, um, people that are doing it, which is super, super um, exciting to see. Great. Yeah. Silver lining. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, but I think, uh, you know, the biggest pool for the market, Japanese sake people, think it's American market, which is, I um, think America has a third of the export quantity. Yeah, that would make sense. I don't know the specific numbers on it. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, it's still, you know, sake is still very much primarily consumed within Japan. Um, and it's it's interesting to see for a lot of these breweries, you know, they're kind of local, um, generally blue collar businesses. So the idea that, you know, even if you're making something amazing, that people would care in New York mm. what you're making, I think for a lot of them is sort of this like, well, you know, why, why would that be? Um, but more and more as you make these connections directly with them, like you can see how moved they are that, um, you know, here in a New York, that a city that ostensibly has everything in terms of food and drink that, mm. you know, people would choose you know, something coming from this small brewery where it's like, oh, there's just 10 of us making this. We're in a very out of the way place in Japan that maybe most Japanese people haven't heard of this area. Mm. But, you know, you're saying that folks in New York are getting excited about the stuff we're making here. So that's a pretty interesting um, connection to make and sort Mm. of uh, see that. Right. And I think, uh, you know, someone like you who can change the image of Japanese sake abroad can really contribute. I hope so. Growth of the market. Definitely. I I think it's it's something that... um, more and more you're seeing this interest in sake. I, I, I see it kind of as this like logical extension of the whole like craft beer movement where all these people were, you know, these 
craft beer breweries showed up and they're trying all these different sort of brewing techniques and, you know, trying all these like traditional beer styles um, that are maybe more obscure beer styles. And that's kind of, I mean, that hasn't definitely hasn't played itself out, but I think all of the, the major styles have sort of been um, sort of brought out of obscurity and people are, you know, dogfish head is making beer based on, you know, ancient Egyptian recipes as closely as they can, things like that. Mm. And now that people discover sake, which is also brewed um, definitely distinctly from beer, they sort of see like, wow, this is, you know, it's brewing, but it's on like a whole nother level. Mm. Um, and I, I'm starting to see, you know, we're starting to see interest, I think, in, in respect for the craft um, of it. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's on, on your shoulders. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, I think I want to keep talking, but mm. I have to take a quick break here. So, when we come back, we'll talk about um, some technical uh, sake questions. Sure. So, please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Kateyama, and my guest today is Jamie Graves, who is the Japanese portfolio manager at Skarnik Wines, which is a leading wine and a spirits importer and a distributor based in New York City. So, um... I have some specific questions yes. about sake for my listeners. Uh, so I'll ask you those. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, what is Kimoto and Yamaha style of sake? Um, okay, so Kimoto and Yamaha are um, they're specifically uh, sort of what are called starter methods. Um, so what's kind of unique um, and different about uh, sake, the, the acid in sake. So, you know, we have acid in wine. Um, it provides kind of balance and structure. Um, the acid in sake uh, is lactic acid, mm-hmm. and um, that needs to be kind of built up. Um, at That's the lactic acid basically is all over, right? In the air. So yes. you don't have to add anything. You just leave it, and then just that lactic acid g- gets into. Um, kind of. I mean, it, it it's kind of like with um with yeast uh, for you know wine or something like yeah, it, it's around and maybe you'll get some in there, but um, there's sort of better ways to control it. Mm. Um, so sort of the uh, the short answer is um, they discovered um, 
uh, just over a hundred years ago, uh, as Japan was, you know, kind of modernizing and they were um, discovering more about kind of what chemically was going on in sake, like sort of how it was made up. They're like, oh, this, you know, acid taste we're getting is lactic acid. Oh, we can get lactic acid right over here. Um, let's just, you know, put that in our brew to start. Um, and it, it saves a bunch of time. Um, it gets a very consistent result. Um, and that's the way that, um, from what I understand, it's like 99% of sake probably mm. is made that way today. And it's, you know, it produces absolutely lovely, very consistent um, sake. It's sort of a very important part of the process. Um, but Kimoto and Yamahai are sort of, um, sort of older methods uh, that naturally develop lactic acid. So instead of adding it, at the beginning, um, it allows lactic acid uh, bacteria um, to sort of form naturally and then sort of build up the acid naturally. Um, Kimoto is sort of the traditional way of doing it that I understand it was like the uh, the late 17th century, so the, around like 1700 or so. Um, believe that's when it started. Uh, they figured out that you could um, kind of make this mash of, of paste of like rice and, um, and water and uh, koji rice, which is sort of this, you know, um, special kind of uh, mold uh, on rice that's important for sake making. And if you mix them all together, specifically if you mash them mm. into a paste with like these poles, mm. um, it'll create this sort of, um, you kind of liquefy that um, and that will naturally uh, start to build up uh, lactic acid over a period of days. Mm. Um, and that's how you start. And that was just kind of how it was done for a few hundred years. Mm. Um, so it's basically create a perfect environment for lactic acid to grow and yeah. then come in. And then exactly, grows. yeah. It sort of creates this like like liquefied ricey paste kind of thing. Right. Um, and I think it was 1909 or so, there was a guy who um, was doing research into sake making. And, you know, this it's very um, labor intensive to make that paste. Like I said, you have to sort of take these poles or tools to kind of make that happen. Mm. Um, and this guy figured out they'd, they'd actually been, there'd been these advances in um, rice polishing or rice milling. Um, so, you know, it's, people ask me sometimes, you classify sake based on how much the rice is milled away. And they're like, well, how do they mill the rice? And, you know, now they use these big modern machines, but uh, they used to have kind of very basic um, sort of like mortar and pestle things or these sort of like these... Uh, um, water wheel based mm. things that, you know, grind the rice a little bit and polish it, but you can't polish it very far that way with those traditional machines. But, um, you know, about a hundred years or so they had advances, um, in this technology and you could polish rice, uh, further. You could polish it down to like 70%, um, of the original size. And this guy found that, wait a minute, um, now that we've got this rice polished down farther, you don't have to do all this mashing and stuff. Um, if you just, you know, put together the, the rice and the koji rice and the water and sort of control that starter mm. at the very beginning, you can naturally build this up and you don't have to do all of that, mm. um, all of that sort of agitation of it, which right. is something I just learned recently. I was always wondering, like, why did it take them so long to figure out Yamahai? And the reason is they hadn't they didn't have the technology to polish rice down <laughs> that far where they could actually do it. And now that they had. About 100 years ago, they could polish rice down more. They could make Yamahai and it sort of skipped. Mm. Um, it could do the same thing um, and, yeah, produce great sake. Mm. Yep. But the point is, though, I started to see Mokimoto no Yamahai, mm. which is, uh, I think, a more 
it's not funky, but uh, mm. more complicated flavor. And I, I, I see more Kimoto mm. Niyamahai at restaurants in, in New York. Yes. I think, I mean, it's definitely a very popular style among、um, people who are sort of paying attention to sake.、Um, I find a lot of people, once they discover it, they start asking for it.、Um, mm. Because it builds up the, the acid naturally, it's got、um, more kind of sort of body and depth to it. Um, than a, a more you know, traditional、uh, sake to it.、Um, and also because they take a, you know, two weeks or so to build up these starters, other bacteria from the environment will naturally get in there and、mm. provide more kind of depth and sort of that sense of、um, you know, place and terroir to the sake that you're,、um, you're making、uh, in a way that if you just put lactic acid in and get started, you, you have less of that. Um, depth and sense of place to it.、Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Right, so I have to drink more Kimos the other high because it's, it's so worth it, right? Labor、yeah. of love. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's, it's more time consuming, but I find them to have a, a ton of character and really, really、mm. beautiful. And they're, they're,、uh, they're great with food too, since they have a little bit more acid,、um, a little bit more body. They're not、mm. just as like, light、um, and pretty like a lot of great sake, but they have a little bit more. Body and depth, and they can stand up to eating、mm, with a meal.、Right. They work quite well with that. Do you see more sake brewers making Kimoto Yamahai now as a revival?、Um, I think so. It, it's definitely as people are trying to make sake that's sort of you know,、um, different or unique or also special to this brewery. I mean, that's a way that you really bring in a sense of that brewery alone. Like, obviously, the,、um, the bacteria will go in、mm. um, or the sort of the, you know, the air. From that brewery will inform it.、Um, it makes for a very distinctive sake. It's kind of a different selling point,、um, mm-hmm. but it is labor intensive and expensive. So it, it's something that they'll use for their more,、um, you know, some of their more kind of premium sake、mm-hmm. and less like the everyday ones. Right.、Yep. Okay. And by the way,、um, Stephen Lyman、uh, in episode 109 said、uh, you introduced him to Bodaimoto sake. Yes.、Uh, which is a unique sake from Nara Prefecture. And、um, I heard it's somewhat similar to Kimoto and Yamahai. So, what is it? So, it, it is similar to Kimoto and Yamahai in that it's, a, it's sort of an older method that's pre this, you know,、um, just kind of add the lactic acid、um, and go.、Uh, it is, so I've, I've been doing research on it myself, and I actually only discovered it、um, about a year or so ago. It comes from Nara.、Um, Nara is sort of the old, old, old. Old capital of Japan.、Right. They've had a, the oldest. The oldest, yeah. <laughs>、right. The capital changed a bunch of times, but that's、mm-hmm. like、um, from like 700 AD or so. That's where the capital was for like about 100 years or so.、Right. Um, and so there's a very old, that's kind of the oldest sense of Japanese culture there. And,、mm-hmm. um, you know, that's where the first rice farming was. So that's where the first kind of、uh, sake was made that we can tell anyway.、Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sake was made in sort of a, a way in,、um, you know, farms and people would make these kind of simple, Kind of more moonshine type things, but the advanced sake,、um, the stuff that we have written records of, but then also the most sort of knowledge was uh, through um, sort of shrines and temples.、Mm. You know, they're repositories of knowledge. These、um, specifically Buddhist monks are, you know, going back to China and they're learning sort of the,、um, uh, the latest advances in sake making from China. So、um, there's a, a temple in Nara, a very old one called a Shou Ryakuji,、mm. um, that.、Uh, It's sort of this, this sect is based there. And apparently, that's where you get all of these advances in sake making. Like,、um, mm. Sandan Shikomi is this three step method that's very,、um, uh, it's where you slowly build up a starter. It's what's able to make sake so kind of、um, uh, strong in alcohol, whereas other, you know, wine is about naturally about 12, 13, 14, 15%. Sake can get up to like 20% alcohol.、Mm. That's, that comes from that.、Um, and apparently, Shodakuji, they, they probably made. 
the starter, this like building up of lactic acid like this for a hundred years, but around like the 14th century or so, um, there's written records of this method where you put, um, I've read different accounts. It sounds like you put cooked rice in water and just kind of let it sit there. So you mm. don't put any koji in, you don't put any yeast. And, you know, as you can imagine, you put cooked rice in water and just let it sit at room temperature. It starts to get kind of funky. It starts <laughs> to bubble a little bit and it starts to get sour. Mm. Um, and the the idea is that you're producing this sort of sour liquid, this sour water that's naturally producing lactic acid. And that's your starter. Um, so it, it's, it's based at, it was always... Um, uh, based at this temple Shiodakuji, uh, the written records of that. Um, and it was sort of the old method. And then that Kimoto thing we were talking about where you sort of um, build, you know, grind it into a paste, um, grind the sort of rice into a paste. That developed later. But um, in Nara, because they have this tradition of it, uh, in from what I've read, 1996, uh, there was an organization within Nara. Um, they wanted to sort of research and bring back traditional methods of making sake. Mm. Um, and one thing they... Came, came up with was, you know, there's these written records of this um, original method and they're like, let's revive this. So there's actually 10 breweries that they work with that temple, Shiodiakuji, and they make that traditional starter of like rice in water, let it sit, mm. let it get acidic. Um, and they'll do it in the temple. So it's that original temple it was done in. It's got the air. It's got, you know, that same bacteria. Right. And then from there, they will distribute that um, to the, the 10 participating uh, breweries and they will use that as their starter their lactic acid starter, and then from there make um, a bodaimoto uh, sake. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever tasted any of those? Um, a few of them. Yeah, it's actually amazing how much variation mm. there is with them. Um, they do have this great um, sort of slightly acidic, slightly sour quality to them, um, but they can be very elegant. Um, mm. There's some that are um, sort of very light and elegant with a nice kind of little sour acidic finish to them. There's some that are uh, very kind of rich and sweet that have like a nice acidic quality to it. It really depends on the brewery that's making it. Mm. Um, but they do all sort of share that. Um, they, they, you can tell they're all kind of cousins to one another. It's a really right. cool project. Yeah. Mm. So sounds like a more acidic flavor or unique acidic. Yeah, flavor? slightly more acidic. Mm. Um, uh, slightly more acidic. It's kind of a, a lot of a bit of body to it. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it, it makes for kind of a great base to things, but like everything with sake, it's, it can be very, very subtle. Mm. Um, so um, you could taste two bodai moto and sort of be like, wow, these are actually, you know, a similar style to it. But if you have to sort of point out that that mm. very unique sort of sour quality to okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So maybe I have to visit one of those 10 breweries to taste yeah, there, right? well, actually, um, they've just started coming to the U.S. Um, so we, I'm very excited that um, we are having one uh, come in, I think, in about a month or so. Um, for, there's a great brewery called um, Yuchol, Chuzo mm. and Nara. Um, they've got a really cool brand called Kazenomori, uh, which is, Kazenomori is huge now in Japan. Um, and they also make a boraimoto called Takacho. Mm. Um, so this Takacho we're bringing in, it's, it's really, it's big, it's rich. It's got this really cool, unique flavor. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited that we're going to be able to introduce that uh, wow. to New York City. Oh, yeah. Let me know when it's ready. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So um, another question uh, from listener. Um, so the, you know, Koji is, um, you know, does some uh, stuff that converts yeah. starch to sugar. Mm. And then sugar is converted to alcohol and CO2 by yeast, which mm -hmm. is Kobo. Uh, but uh, so, and it's, I heard it's very hard to control Um the koji for brewmasters. Yes. So what's the hardest part? Um, I mean, I, God, I, I'm still learning, I think. I mean, it's, it's really, um, 
there's sort of a saying within Japanese brewing uh, circles that um, you know koji is sort of the the base of everything that you do. It's um, um, really that if you can't master growing koji, everything else that's one of your first steps. And if if you don't get your koji rice right, everything else will fall apart. Mm. Um, so what's difficult about it? I mean, it's you, you can imagine that it, you know, you're sprinkling this kind of dust, like these spores. Mm. If you've ever seen like a, a mushroom or something, you know, shoot out spores, mm-hmm. you're basically trying over to over rice. Over rice, base, yeah. Right? So you're trying to control that, and it's, you know, you're basically sprinkling this fine dust on rice and then trying to make it happy mm. um, so it can eat the rice in the right way. Um, and it's it's a lot of controlling temperature. I mean, it's this intense mm. process in this, this koji room of about, you know, two to three days. Um, they'll slowly uh, build these spores on the rice, and, and they check every section of the um, the steamed rice. Mm. And you can, if you if you touch and feel this stuff, you see that it's the temperature is constantly shifting. Um, right. Even within each, uh, you know, one big thing of the steamed rice, you can move through. It, you're like, oh, there's a cold spot over here. It's like, oh, well, we have to mm. mix that in with the warm spots. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any fermentation surprisingly releases a lot of heat. Yeah. Right, even even soil too. So mm-hmm. right, and I heard that you have to check every two hours. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it's really. I mean, it, it depends. It, it really depends on the brewery to it. But it's um, yeah, the traditional people they will have to um, you know, kind of get up every two hours and check it. Actually, mm-hmm. with I've heard with the advances of um, smartphones and stuff now, they have you know thermometers that they can leave in the rice, and so they can just kind of like check their smartphones, right. look at it, and be like, <laughs> okay, it seems to be pretty good, but. You know, you do have to go and check on it and make sure that the the temperature hasn't changed too much. Mm. Um, It's really like, uh, it's almost like raising a baby, kind of like a newborn that you have to check on constantly, make sure it's, you know, make sure the temperature is correct, Mm. kind of move it around, sort of nuzzle, you know, nudge it a little bit. It's a really, uh, it's a pretty intense process. Because if you mess with that, you completely fail the whole year's production in a way um yeah well it, it's it's totally ongoing i mean they're right. making koji the whole year mm. constantly you, you make more koji you you know you start making sake out of that you make your next batch of koji right. um and it's pretty intense if you don't make your koji right the taste will be very thin mm. on sake that's what gives you all of your kind of like richness and umami and depth right. true sake is good koji yeah mm. okay so um one more question so um this is very common so once you open a bowl of sake how long can you keep um because it's a yeah. wine is very you know like once you open it you have to drink up but the sake i heard is a little longer yeah that's that's one thing that i've i've a point i've been hammering home um within the company constantly to um all these uh you know all these people that at, uh my company skernick are know wine really well and they're kind of used to working with that and i've been kind of letting them know that sake keeps uh, a lot longer generally mm-hmm. Um, than wine once you open it. Um, it it depends on the uh, the brewery. There's some breweries that it's like, oh, it's just three to four days. But in general, I like to say that you know, two weeks you open a bottle of sake, it'll still be good. Mm. Um, some breweries uh, brew some that are a little bit more robust that can hold up to it. Some are a little bit more delicate. Um, what I like to say is that if you have like a very delicate daiginjo, mm. you know, it can maybe it'll still be drinkable, but mm. it's it's probably best to drink that quickly. But more basic styles, junmai and um, other more kind of like rich styles can actually you know two weeks i've had some four weeks later i've, I've tried some like six to two months after opening mm. um and you're like hey this is still holding well, up so pretty good why is that because you know i understand a wine is more based acidic you mm-hmm. know like the acidity disappears in a way mm-hmm. and but the sake this is some acidity and then the alcohol is only slightly higher than wine yes right it's like 17 18 percent so 
Do you know how it works? Um, well, you're you're exposing my ignorance here, and you're, you're kind of showing why um, why you know studying about sake is kind of this never ending process. Mm. Um, I mean, what I suspect is the the acids aren't the acids don't turn um, into vinegar mm. like wine. So that's kind of I mean, with wine, that's what you know what starts happening. It gets starting getting sour off. You can sort of right. taste after a few days. You're like, Ugh. with sake, it doesn't. The flavor just starts to dissipate really mm. um you start to lose punch you start to lose that nice little acidic tang at the end so there's actually rarely a point where it, it gets to be undrinkable mm. it just gets less and less good but right. even after opening sometimes it opens up after two to three days it's actually mm. you know can taste better um but you know if you do keep out sake for uh, exposed to oxygen for for too long mm. it'll always just end up sort of tasting flabby and watery and right. going away but you can still drink it it just won't be as good mm. yeah my, my guess is you know just the so-called complex spiral fermentation mm-hmm. so you you kind of convert starch to sugar sugar to alcohol but it's it's happening at the same time mm-hmm. so that's complexity and also i heard um I mentioned a couple of times in the show uh, in the past because so impressive so one the taste elements in sake is 600 Mm. And the wine, 400. And the uh, beer, 200. So mm-hmm. those elements kind of maintain hmm. the flavor. That's my yeah. imagination. But yeah. we'll see. It's, I mean, it's a complicated thing. It's really interesting. You, know, mm. you never stop learning about sake. Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe next time you go to Japan, you can just visit one of those institutes of sake and ask them. <laughs> why. Yeah, I've got, I've got so many questions that I, I'm constantly writing down and researching just to <laughs> wrap my head around this. Yeah, yeah. so uh, how often do you go to Japan? Um, I, so uh, before when I was on a restaurant schedule, I would try to get there every, years, but, uh, every year, but realistically it was every two years or so. Mm. Um, hopefully, you know, with this uh, job, I'll get to go there, you know, more often, at least once, you know, at least once a year. And uh, right. I think hopefully a lot more. I have to keep coming back and uh, give us update. Definitely. Right. Okay. So uh, where can we uh, find your updates? Like, you know, ongoing um, website or website. Uh, so actually skernick.com is an amazing uh, resource. The company puts a lot of um, energy into our blog, Skernick Unfiltered, um, which has you know updates on our wine producers and whatnot. But I am producing regular posts on our um, our sake producers on topics in sake, things like that. Um, it's a really good kind of educational resource. Um, mm. That's a great place to check things out. So Skernick.com and checking out the Skernick Unfiltered area. Mm, so it's S K U R N I K dot com. And you said unfiltered? That's yeah, Skernick Unfiltered <laughs> is the name of the blog, yeah. <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, I wish we had more time, but uh, we're running right out of time. So thank you for joining us today. Jane. Great. Thank you. This was great. Okay. So uh, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests uh, or questions you're going to ask to guests, uh, please contact us at japanneeds.heritageradionetwork.org uh, or you can also uh, contact me through akikokatem.com. And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. And an engineer today is David Tassiore. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.